You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington standing by to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the latest market news. Another gloomy day in markets. Oil continues to be in a tailspin, with the more long-dated WTI futures down severely. Interestingly, energy stocks were down only slightly today perhaps reflecting the more optimistic forward curve for WTI. Meanwhile, stocks had a melancholic day as well, but U.S. equities are still pricing in that the U.S. economy will reopen soon. In other news, many states' issuances of stay-at-home orders are still set to expire on April 30th, and states like Tennessee and Ohio are expected to allow most businesses to reopen on May 1st, in the midst of major pressure from protesters and constituents to reopen the economy. Yet as Ohio begins to prepare to reopen, they've had close to 13,000 confirmed cases and almost 500 confirmed deaths. Recently, it's been discovered that the Marion Correctional Center, about an hour north of Columbus, has become a hotspot for COVID-19. 1,828 inmates, 73% of the total inmate population, and 109 staff members tested positive, which accounts for roughly 20% of total cases in Ohio. Daily confirmed cases in Ohio have accelerated over the last few days as well. The Marion Correctional Center may have had an impact on this, but it is still concerning the pace at which cases are being reported. However, states like Georgia and South Carolina are moving toward gradually opening some businesses sooner than the 30th. Some of these states are reporting more than 500 cases yesterday, including Ohio and Georgia, which are at 1,317 cases and 1,242 cases, respectively. They come in directly behind Massachusetts, which is an emerging hotspot, at 1,566 cases reported yesterday. Starting this Friday, Georgia residents will be able to return to places like the gym, salons, and tattoo parlors. In South Carolina, some retail businesses that were previously deemed non-essential and public beaches would be permitted to reopen starting today. Even so, both governors, Brian Kemp of Georgia and Henry McMaster of South Carolina, emphasize that businesses will still need to abide by social distancing and sanitation guidelines. In the U.S. more broadly, we see that daily confirmed cases have been holding steady, anywhere between 25,000 and 35,000 cases for the past couple weeks, suggesting that we may be nearing a peak number for daily additional cases nationwide. A continued battle against COVID. Now let's go to Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington for their macro analysis. Ash? Thanks, Nick. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision. It's Tuesday, April 21st. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm here with Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. Hello, Ed. Good to see you again, Ash. Ed, once again, a lot happening. Let's jump right in. What are you looking at? Well, uh, before we get to the oil and what's going on in the markets, let me just tell you uh, three or four stories that Gabrielle sent that uh, hopefully we'll get into the piece today. Uh, she sp sent some stories on Kim Jong-un, uh, his health deteriorating. Uh, we're looking at uh, the deficit uh, uh, maybe reaching $4 trillion. 
There's also, I think, a very interesting thing about EM in terms of SDRs being issued in order to give EM liquidity. And then also, finally, Argentina. I think that on Wednesday, they have a coupon payment coming. They might default. A lot of people are talking about that. A lot to unpack. You're going to have to explain special drawing rights uh, for everyone who does not follow the international development community as closely as you do, which is just about every human being on Earth. Um, so what are the stories that you are looking at right now that you think are the most important and where we can add the most value to unpack? Yeah, so uh, let's start with the oil story and how I'm looking at it. Uh, I wrote, you know, you know, I wrote something accredited write downs again this morning. The the I think the macro view that I was presenting was that it's the end of oil independence for the U.S. That's the way to look at it. So the, to take you through it stepwise, what we're seeing in terms of uh, the problems that we're seeing with oil going negative yesterday. Really, it's a fundamental problem more than just a technical problem. It's because of the Kupperman trade. Harris Kupperman, who said that you know you have 20 million barrels a day of excess and has to find a place to go. Uh, it, 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 people don't know where to store that oil. That's going to be in effect for a very long period of time, not just during the shutdown, but as we ramp up after the shutdown. That's a fundamental problem. And so what it means is, is, is that the oil price is going to stay low until you get some sort of supply uh, withdrawal. And the sort of withdrawal that we're talking about is not the kind that you can get from a meeting in OPEC plus. It's the kind that only happens when companies go bankrupt because they run out of business. And so we're going to get that sort of activity. And only when we get that activity uh, will we get to the level where supply and demand meet. And that, generally speaking, means a huge bust in the U.S. shale oil business. And while that's ongoing, you have uh, the general shutdown and all sorts of economic uh, negativity, uh, both in high yield and for banks. So they're not going to be re-upping uh, in terms of capital investment. They're not going to give money to shale oil for capital investment. So all of that, that stuff is going to go offline. And so eventually what it's going to mean is, is that that shale is going to be no longer the swing producer in the world. Uh, that sector is going to be shrunken dramatically. Yeah, you know, we, we agree on so much on, on these issues. And I, I read uh, Credit Write Downs uh, this morning, and it was especially interesting to me because you tied together the real vision component. You told the backstory of the cup, I mean, of the cuppy trade, which I thought was really interesting. And you also said something that for me really resonated and is probably worth quoting. Quote, the issue is oversupply. And none of this will go away until supply and demand are in balance, which means supply means to shrink some 20 to 25 million barrels per day. That can't happen without A, a collapse in oil prices, and two, a massive shut in wells and bankruptcies. So, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of the technical aspects of what's happening uh, reflected in the numbers that we see uh, coming out of markets. But the key issue here, once again, is demand. Demand is collapsing across sectors, across different areas. We're talking about demand collapsing from the consumer level, at the retail level. Everything is collapsing on the demand side. So I think this point is especially well taken and an important one. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that what it means is is that 
it, it tells you what people were talking about. It, it gives you a sense of the Fed's inability to save everyone. Okay, so th that's the first thing that comes to mind because we we had this debate about how far the Fed will go down. I mean, I know Albert Edwards has said if we hit 2,000 on the S&P that the Fed will start buying uh, ETFs, equity ETFs. Okay, they might be doing that, but the reality is is, is that someone's gonna go to the wall. Not everyone's gonna be able to make it out of this alive. And so when demand collapses as much as it is doing, the Fed can't go around and corral everyone and save them. So when you think about the high yield sector in particular, I think that's an important point to make out. Triple C's, single B's, many of those companies, they're, they're just going to default. That's the reality. Some of them are going to go into bankruptcy and uh, be liquidated. So I think that when you are now, we're starting to see that uh, there's a differentiation. I mean, the market action today, to me, suggests that people are starting to wake up to that. You know, when we talked about Rao's uh, framework, he was talking about a rolling framework of you have the liquidation phase, you have the uh, the hope phase, and then you have what I'm calling the real economy phase. He was calling the bankruptcy phase. Uh, that That's where we're going right now. Oil yeah. is telling you that we're, we're, that we're there. So yeah. yesterday marked the day. You know, it's so interesting. It seems like we all reach the same conclusions in slightly different ways, but we all kind of land in, in very much the same place. And we talked about this yesterday, which is Raul is so far ahead of the curve. For those of you who aren't Real Vision subscribers, Raul Powell is our, our uh, co-founder and CEO, uh, and had been talking about the doom loop, had been talking about the collapse in uh, in demand for oil, had talked about the collapse in price for oil, and all of these things have come to pass variously. And it seems when we look at it that it's, you know, perhaps in, in context, uh, something that should have been more more obvious to more people. You know, listen, I, I talked to a friend of mine last night who's a, a former uh, brokerage CFO, former managing director at a big bank. And I said to him, like, well, what, what levels are you watching? What are you looking at? And he said, I'm looking at my gas gauge. That's what I'm looking at. I've had the same tank of gas in my car for the last uh, six weeks. You know, yeah. nobody is consuming the end product. So while we get sort of lost on sometimes all these technical factors and how rebalancing takes place and, you know, front month versus back month and contango, the driver here is there's simply no demand. People are not consuming petroleum products because the economy is grinding to a halt. Well, you know, interesting. it's interesting you'd say that. Let me see if I can pull up. The, I saw something that I retweeted from um, a guy, Javier uh, Blas, who was talking about what's going on in Spain in terms of the uh, the numbers that we're talking about. Here it is, yeah. So Javier, he's saying that Spain's actually putting out really good numbers in terms of demand. And he says that the demand hit uh, for Spain under the coronavirus knockdown is, uh, lockdown is, is for the week of April the 19th, here are the numbers, jet fuel minus 93% uh, right. demand. Gasoline minus eighty one percent, and diesel minus fifty five percent. So yes. exactly as you're saying, when you're talking about collapse, I mean that is an a absolute catas catastrophe for right. uh, the fossil fuels industry. So that right. is a collapse, and obviously you're going to have prices at ten dollars a barrel as a result of that. That's that's the reality. Yeah, and I and I would add to that not just a catastrophe for the fossil fuel industry, although it certainly is that, but also an index, a proxy for what else is happening in the real economy, for the absence of demand, for the absence of 
consumption, for the absence of normal economic functioning. You know, we've talked about this before, uh, the notion that, you know, one person's wages are the next person's revenue and one person's revenue is the next person's wages. This is cyclical. This, this flows through the system. Uh, and the reality is what we're seeing in oil prices represents something that's much bigger in terms of the collapse in demand throughout the U.S. and global economy. Now, this seems to be a relatively agreed-upon proposition. If you look at the numbers coming out of Goldman, if you look at the numbers coming out of J.P. Morgan for what they project for Q2 2020, everyone agrees it's going to be absolutely horrible. The question becomes, and I think where you and I maybe are looking a little bit further ahead than some others, uh, is what what this, this alleged snapback that's going to occur. You hear this from the EIA and the IEA. You hear this from big banks who are doing the sell-side research, who are doing these models to predict and forecast what future consumption, what future economic activity in the U.S. is going to look like. And I just have a really hard time believing that we're coming back from this uh, in a period of, of, you know, a quarter or several or several months plus a quarter. It's really hard for me to see how that happens. Well, you know, uh, uh, I think that a lot of people aren't thinking that far ahead. Uh, and as a result, uh, that's why we see the disconnect that we're seeing. I thought it was very interesting, actually, that my sister, she reached out to me. She follows uh, the market and so forth. And she was asking me because uh, for a friend of hers uh, who wanted to go into uh, uh, USO, you know, the, um, right. the, the oil contract, is now a good time to buy? That's what the question was. Literally, she asked me that today. And I said no. And the reason I said no is because... Actually, that's a contract that's undergoing extreme volatility. It's not, you know, you as a retail investor, you don't know what you're getting into. They're rolling from the front month to 20% into the second month contract. There are all sorts of anomalies that are going right. on there. And you, uh, that is your friend, who's a complete novice, you want to call the bottom on that? I mean, that's just in insane. And so that's exactly the, the kind of market that we're talking about. This is the market that's been created. People yes. think that somehow, uh, you know, the equities have rallied 30 percent, 25 now uh, only 24 percent. Now's the time for me to call the bottom on, right. uh, on oil. I just think that uh, these people are just going to get mowed over and it's not going to be pretty whatsoever. You know, it's so funny that you should mention that, Ed, because we haven't talked about USO yet, but we were both looking at that. And for me, it's the classic example of how you have you have fundamental factors driving really complicated, really nuanced, really abstract technical issues. So so with USO, we're seeing this is this is of course the big oil ETF and 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 it's gotten it plunged about uh, I don't know, about 25 to 30%, uh 28% after uh after it was briefly halted. You know, there's all kinds of crazy technical nuance going on behind the scenes. There's something called the creation basket. They got off sides with uh, their ability to create new shares of the ETF relative to the underlyings that were moving very rapidly. There's some talk about them switching structures between an ETF and a closed-ended fund. This is not a place for people who don't know this market really well to play. I think right. one of our guests called it adult swim, right? This is adult swim. Don't dive into these places unless you're really sure that you know what you're doing. Right. And, you know, I think that uh, to piggyback on that, it reminds me to a certain degree about HYG and J&K in the sense that, you know, those underlying markets are illiquid markets. And so when we see these market structure issues pop up with uh, USO, we right. have to think to ourselves that 
there are uh, there are fundamental problems with ETFs in terms of liquidity that right. we just don't know until these markets are under stress. So we'll take a look and we'll see what happens. But you know, um, just the Fed's intervening is not necessarily going to save these markets from these types of jitters. And the interesting bit, by the way, I think the the best thing that I've heard people talk about is yes, the the Fed can go and they can intervene in the equity markets, they can intervene in the bond markets even, but really uh, a physical market, a tradable market like this is something that they probably are not going to be able to 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 uh, intervene in. And that's where you're going to get the real price discovery. And the price discovery that we're getting, as you alluded to, is a proxy for where everything else should be going. So over time, I think that that's where we're going to see um, this is my my bias, your own bias, that we're going to see the convergence down toward uh, this level, down, down towards the real economy. And so that this retracement, this 50% retracement that we had, it's now falling apart, and we're going into a period of consolidation and potentially another down leg as a result of that. Right. And we're seeing that materialize as well in uh, in industrial metals. Copper's getting hit. It was off about 4% earlier. Uh, and I think it's off about a little bit less than that now um, at the close. The, you know, the reality is that these, these issues from the real economy are beginning to filter through. And there are a whole series of complicated technical factors when structured products, exchange-traded products uh, like ETNs and ETFs uh, have to rebalance. Uh, but the underlying driver of this is something that people, uh, it's really easy to see when you just walk out of your apartment or your house and you see the economic devastation that this crisis has caused. Uh, and it's really hard to believe. You know, you talked you talked a bit about numbers. You know, the S&P closed uh, off the day, let's see, I think about three, uh, around 3%, uh, and 3.07%. Uh, and just to bring this into some context, from prior week close, that's minus 4.8%. And from the all-time high, uh, which is 19 February at 3,386, uh, it's only it's only off 19.2%. So you look at this and you go, well, is this just a sort of a, a plain vanilla correction? Is that what this looks like to you? It's not what it feels like to me. Well, you know, you were talking about base metals, and I think that this is a good pivot to go even away from the United States and to go towards the articles that Gabrielle was sending me, because I think that uh, when we think about uh, EM, we're thinking about uh, metals, we're thinking about commodities and what's going to happen there. And so what she's talking about in this article is that the IMF and the G20 issued some debt relief, or they're talking about debt relief. It's not really a done deal yet that uh, these governments uh, will get, EM will get debt relief, but they're exploring the possibility of issuing these special drawing rights. That is, uh, the IMF uh, is uh, is going to give them money based upon the money that other pe other the, the global economy has put into the IMF so that they can make them whole not using US dollars but using an IMF vehicle the interesting bit for me is that you know I know that Jim Rickards he talks about this a lot the concept that it's not going to be gold per, per se or Bitcoin that's going to be the new dominant currency of sorts his theory and I'm not completely bought into this at all is that SDRs is going to be something of, of note of more importance in in the next uh, generation of uh, of currencies I mean, SDRs are effectively a weighted currency basket developed by the IMF uh, for use in their special drawing rights program. Could you maybe give a little bit of color on why that's so relevant and why that matters so much in this circumstance? 
Yeah, so that means that you know if there's dollar uh, liquidity problems, then uh, that that can be circumvented by giving uh, people these SDRs, these credits, and that will somehow mean that EM can be made whole. They they can get rid of their liquidity problems, and it won't be a dollar funding problem as a result. I mean, that's the sense that I'm getting from why they're trying to uh, to do it this way because they're getting ahead of the problem that all of these debtors are indebted in dollars and they want to be able to roll it over in a way that is not completely dependent upon the dollar. Yeah. There's also some potential conflict, as we saw in Greece, uh, between private sector and public sector creditors for EM debt relief. Yeah. And I saw, in fact, that, you know, when I said it's not a done deal with the G20, you know, uh, the G7 had said, yes, last week, we, we want the debt relief as long as the Paris Accord and the G20 get down with this. But, you know, the private creditors are like, wait a minute, we're not at all in, in line with giving debt relief to these, uh, these EMs. And I think when you think about it from a coronavirus perspective, this is what's happening. So, you know, you're seeing the devastation in New York, and it's starting to fan out to other places. We believe, I mean, a, a lot of people believe that it's going to hit other places later and in great number. And the, the question is, is whether or not EM will be able to survive because their infrastructure, their healthcare infrastructure is much worse. So in anticipation of that, you would want to give them debt relief. But the private creditors are holding out. And I think that this is a problem that could be of great importance. It goes back to what I was telling you, I think, uh, last week about China and the Chinese ability to use this as a as a uh, political uh, weapon in order to uh, get into these EMs and to somehow get them on side and uh, have their raw materials uh, for the Chinese use. Yes. We do not live in a post-nation state world. Uh, there are these sort of vestigial aspects of neo-mercantilism that always lurk in the background. Nations effectively advocating for their own economic, political, and military advantage. I mean, just think about it this way. Okay, let me present you a scenario. Let's say, as an example, the private creditors say, you know what, we're not going to give debt relief to these uh, these uh, countries in, in Asia or in Africa and, let's say, Latin America. What we want is we want our money. And so the G7 and the G20, they're like, okay, well, I guess we can't give them a debt break because the private creditors said no. Then China comes in and they say, you know what, actually, uh, we'll, we'll hook you up. We'll help you out. All you got to do is make sure that we have a partial ownership of your ports or that you know we have a 50-50 joint venture structure for the mining capacity that you're building in this particular region, and we'll be, we'll be good to go. That's, that's a scenario that I think is not uh, too far-fetched, and this is what we're talking about right now. Yeah, it's one of the risks of isolationism. It's one of the risks of the U.S. withdrawing global leadership. You know, the the points that you made, which um, if you if you in the in the sort of Francis Fukuyama world, the run up to uh, to 9-11, that we lived in this world that was after history. These things didn't really matter. But the reality is they do. 
you know, resources are scarce. There's competition for natural resources. There's competition for shipping ports and shipping lanes. Uh, and China is very much playing the long game. You know, China is, I think, on their 12th or 13th five-year plan. This is not uh, something that's ad hoc for them. They're planning this out. They're looking at it strategically. They're planning what's in the interest of the of, of the of broader China, in their view, uh, for the next 50, 100, maybe 200 years. Uh, and they're playing that game uh, very smart. Yeah. You know, uh, so Gabrielle sent the other story. That was the Argentina story. I don't really have a whole lot to say about that, but I just wanted to flag it because uh, they could default tomorrow. And I think that we'll start to see what, what the debt dynamics in EM are because of uh, Argentina. Are there going to be other knock-on effects as a result of that? Are people going to reprice other EMs? Is this whole concept that we're talking about now going to play out in some capacity as a result of, yes, now we know that the, that the, uh, the defaults are happening? I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if Argentina makes their coupon payment or whether they, they default, because they're telling their creditors, actually, we want to restructure and we're only going to give you 30 cents in the dollar. They've actually said, you know what, uh, in this debate that we're having in terms of how much money you're going to get from us, we're going to continuously lower the amount of money that we'll, we're willing to offer you as the situation gets more dire. So they're using uh, the pandemic as a way to extract uh, returns uh, for them versus their creditors. So I think all of these things, these dynamics are playing out. And uh, it makes this a very, um, you could almost say a zero-sum game type of world. And that's a very scary place in certain ways. Yeah, it's also interesting. If you weren't looking for the story, you probably didn't find it. This is the uh, this is the sort of the advent of the crush of negative news around coronavirus and and around recently within the last forty eight hours the collapse in oil markets. Right, and and you know uh, everyone's talked about Kim Jong Un in that uh, respect. Yeah. but that's the another story that uh, Gabrielle uh, put up, and I think that you can think of that in the same way, the zero sum game. I don't know what. I don't have a, a view on that. I, I don't know if you have a view, Ash, but I think it is an interesting story just for when we're talking about geopolitics, how that plays out. Yeah, you know, it's it's probably the most opaque place in the world. There were there were rumors last night um, after market closed that he had uh, suffered a serious heart attack, uh, and um, and then the rumor uh, there were some rumors out of South Korea that no, in fact, that wasn't the case, and that the story seesawed around. Uh, the South Korean won uh, declined on those uh, on those rumors. Uh, totally opaque place. We really don't know. We're going to have to wait and see to find out. Um, they're not uh, they're not exactly like something. They're not talking to the AP over there. So. Well, you know, what I heard, the, the, here are some of the rumors I've been hearing, is is that uh, people are saying that actually there are there are coronavirus cases in North Korea. They're not completely cut off from the world in that sense. And right. uh, that if this guy dies, it could mean that there's a rush of people who try to hit the border, you know, hit the Chinese border, hit the South Korean border, whatever it might be. Do you think any of that— uh, is uh, has any merit, or do you think that that's just pure speculation? Well, you know, any, anybody who's followed uh, North Korea stories know that there's always risk of refugee crisis. I think more across the, uh, the the border to China than to South Korea because it's so heavily fortified across the DMZ. You always sort of hear those stories whenever there's a story that's driving a news cycle out of North Korea. I mean, really, again, just such an incredibly opaque place. We're going to have to wait and see. The one thing I would add that's interesting, and I did a little bit of reading up on this, is that his most obvious successor uh, is his closest advisor and sister. Right. Uh, so, 
So in the event that something does happen, uh, it doesn't really sound like there's uh, going to be um, a radical power vacuum. It seems likely from, again, what we know, it's really a black box. But from what we know from the outside, looking in, it seems likely that his sister would rush to move or assume that. And this is obviously a family that has been one of dynastic succession, of course. His grandfather and father were both uh, the rulers of, uh, of North Korea dating back uh, to the days of the Korean War. So I suppose uh, it probably more than likely, if we're you know, guessing about something happening inside a black box, it probably stays inside the Kim family. Yeah. You know, uh, just to end it out, to round it out, I want to go to that deficit issue. Um, I think that uh, we're going to see this PPP uh, program re-upped. Uh, the last I saw, it was going to be a unanimous vote. So we're going to get some more stimulus coming through. Uh, I'm sure that there's going to be another round of stimulus just because we're, yeah. we have more lockdown. Just crossed, just, cr- just crossed the wire. $484 billion package uh, passes the Senate. So right, there you go. I think I heard Mitch McConnell uh, they were talking to him. He was like, it's going to be a unanimous vote. If it's not unanimous, I wouldn't want to be that one senator who's going against it. $4 trillion, though, of, of deficit. The question is, is what does that mean? And I think that you know where I'm coming from on this. And it has to do with the difference between the eurozone and uh, fiat currency issuers like the United States that have substantially all of their liabilities in a currency that they can create. I mean, essentially, it's a token, right? The U.S. dollar is a token for the United States. All it has to do is just reach into its money tree and then print off a bunch of electronic dollars and bang, there you go. So the question is, is what does that mean with regard to inflation? What does it mean with regard to gold? What does it mean with regard to the U.S. dollar versus other currencies, et cetera? And I don't think, first of all, it doesn't mean default. It doesn't mean uh, that interest rates go skyrocketing up because the currency is the release valve. Uh, and as we can see today, uh, the U.S. dollar hit, the DXY hit over 100. So the dollar is actually accelerating. So yeah. when people talk about the deficit, I think that it's one of these uh, debates that is totally uh, misplaced, that it's not going to have a huge impact on uh, the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. It's not going to have a huge impact on interest rates. What we're going to see is that it's a nothing burger, at least for the short to medium term. Yeah, you know, today's market action, DXY, uh, up over 100 uh, U.S. Uh, 10-year Treasury note yields declining slightly, prices rising, showing more demand. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, you, this is on the subject that you are truly an expert in, which is MMT. And what's interesting to me about it is the most popular misconception, at least from what I've encountered in the MMT world, and I'm not an expert in this space, is that there are people who believe that MMT means that deficits just don't matter at all. They're totally immaterial. And that's not true. Deficits matter relative to the currency, your point about being able to control your own destiny by having the currency as a release valve. And secondly, it's really bounded by the productive capacity of the underlying economy. It's not something that they say is just totally untethered and it doesn't matter how much debt you print, because we know that's not the case. You know, throughout history, there are numerous examples of companies, of countries and nation states that got caught in that trap. So Explain for, for, for me, because I don't have your level of sophistication on this point, what is the tipping point? How do you know when too much debt is, in fact, too much? How does the productive capacity of an economy relate to the amount of debt that a country can issue under the MMT paradigm? 
Yeah, I think that the simple answer is is when inflation starts to to rise. That's when you reach full capacity. You know, when uh, productive capacity is at ninety nine percent, when unemployment's at zero point five percent. Obviously, you're bidding up prices, and that's going to uh, create inflation. So the obvious uh, outgrowth of that is inflation. A, a perfect example is uh, Japan. So Japan has 250% government debt to GDP. Uh, they have been uh, doing quantitative easing. They've been doing these deficit programs for years now, uh, 20, almost 30 years. And then every single time, uh, at, uh, they they get the economy restarted. At some point in time, they're like, you know what? Actually, the deficit is too big. We need to uh, impose some sort of sales tax, and immediately the the, the economy falls back in, in in lapses back into recession. Why? Because they they didn't they didn't wait until they got to that level. Uh, you you want to get all the way to the level. That's when it becomes a problem. And, you know, it could move into hyperinflation, obviously. If you look at Zimbabwe, you look at Weimar, Germany, when you when you have uh, uh, limited resources uh, and, you know, and, and you have an external constraint, you can print as much money as you want. You're not going to be able to corral those real resources. And that's when the whole thing uh, takes off. But we're not talking about hyperinflation. We're talking about inflation. So I think that's really what the answer is. It's such an interesting subject. Any final thoughts uh, about where we are today um, versus the, the context of all the issues that we've raised in this analysis? Yeah, I mean, my final thought, you know, still staying on this topic is I see, you know, a, uh, a flattening yield curve environment going forward. I don't I, I don't think that the bond bear market's over. I'd love to see Albert Edwards on our show in some capacity. He's still, you know, talking about the Ice Age thesis uh, where, uh, you know, potentially you could even see negative interest rates in the United States. I think, therefore, that, you know, I'm not uh, bearish on U.S. Treasuries. I think that uh, we still have a long way to go. And to the degree that this economy is negative uh, over the longer period, that's bullish for Treasuries. Yeah, I don't think uh, negative interest rates are going to happen imminently. I think that the Fed is much more likely some sirens outside the window here. Oh, that's not too much. But, uh, you know, I think that the, that the Fed is much more likely to continue to expand their balance sheet. Um, check out the series WALCL at St. Louis Fred. Uh, you can see that number, you know, start to go like this. It's rolled over. It's oh, going yeah. I don't know if my finger was on camera, but believe me, that's going up. Uh, <laughs> And um, you know that's something that uh, it's now over uh, now over six trillion, um, and I think that's probably the direction that they continue to go in, and that seems to be what they're signaling. Sounds. Uh, I'd have to agree with you on that one, Ash. Unfortunately, that's the case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to leave it there. I think. Yeah. Good to talk to you, uh, my, my 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 hairless brother. And uh, you, you, you got you got uh, Roger coming tomorrow, and uh, hope that you guys have a good time. I'm sure uh, you ha you have some wine to talk about, uh, so that'll be good. Indeed, you know, someone asked me yesterday where uh, in the comments where we could uh, store all of this uh, additional oil coming on, and I suggested uh, Roger's wine rack. We'll see if that's an option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, good to talk to you. Thanks, Ed.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.